Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR. And today we welcome Simon Linares. Hi, Simon. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks. And how about you? How are you coping with lockdown? Yeah, pretty well, Lucy, thanks. As you probably know, I'm a trustee of a charity. And one of the things about that is seeing what other people have to put up with really puts things in perspective. So the space that we've got and being able to see the sun shining as it is today makes yeah. it a lot more bearable than it is for some people. So yeah, I can't absolutely. Complain. Yeah, absolutely. But obviously it's a big change. Yeah. Well, um, let's hear a little bit about that charity as we go through and talk about your career, because you are one of the eight, uh, UK's leading HR directors. You've got some amazing blue chip brands on your CV. So Direct Line, Diageo, O2, ITV. Uh, it'd be really good just to get a little potted history of your HR career and just, I don't know, maybe something about your philosophy in some of these roles and uh, how you've approached it. Can you just give us a bit of background as to your professional HR career? Sure. Um, Talk about me, my favourite subject. Um, (laughs) uh, Probably the most important thing to say about my HR career is, is probably that I spent almost 15 years not in HR first in various sales and marketing roles. And, uh, that was a fantastic personal development for me. And it really got you to understand about the business, understand about customers, and understand about competitive behaviors. And that very much has flowed into how I've approached HR jobs, because whatever experience you've got before naturally shapes in part how you look at things in the future. And do you think it has helped you be a better HR director not coming from a traditional HR background where you might have gone through transactional roles, process roles, business partner roles into those more strategic roles? I think earlier on it was probably a disadvantage because I didn't have the technical expertise in specific areas that other people had that came up through the classic HR background. So I think it was a disadvantage. I think also, if I'm honest, I had a fair bit of imposter syndrome because I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you and me both, yeah. (laughs) But I think when you get into more senior roles and you have to sit at the Exco or work with a board, um, actually the broader your business understanding is, the better. Whether whether you got that by working in sales and marketing or whether you got that by actively getting involved in the business, the broader your business understanding is, the better you can contribute to the whole conversation, which is what they want. Yeah, and I think this, uh, I think the the trend we're seeing where a lot of people come from marketing backgrounds now into HR, I think is a fascinating one and maybe one we can pick up about the personalization piece, the consumer mindset that it's really helpful to have in HR. So it's interesting that you've got that marketing background. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me tell me a bit more about some of the, the HR roles that you did then. Yeah, so it, it broadly falls into just, just a few chunks. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to move across into HR while I was at Diageo, um, uh, where I spent 15 years with the company and there I was able to do a whole mix of international jobs and the experience that I had at Diageo were because they were very forward thinking at that time 
So it, uh, the experience that I got there around uh, really how do you cause a culture, understanding how to drive employee performance through employee engagement rather than through yeah. processes, the whole point about customer centricity and employee culture being completely interlinked has shaped a lot of how I approach HR in the roles I did afterwards. But I, I did a mix of international jobs at Diageo, including being based in Spain. And then my last role there was actually the job I'd always wanted, which was the HR job for Africa. Why did you always want that? It, it was the, in, in people terms, it was the most people of any of the regions in Diageo, but it was also the most complex business because it wasn't just spirits, it was beer, it had breweries. Um, it had the whole supply chain and it had the complexity of every country in Africa being completely different. Yeah. And it was somewhere where, you know, you really could fundamentally change lives. The average, I'll never forget that the average employee at Diageo in Africa supported 17 members of their extended family because wow. of the sort of tribal and village network. So if you got it right, yeah. you really got it right there. And it was and it was meaningful. Yeah. And, and some of those considerations about salaries and redundancies and all of that you're you're not just thinking about the impact on the individual but this massive community impact as absolutely well. right absolutely right you know you make make a decision there and you can decimate an entire community or a village or a town and yeah. uh, make yeah. the right decision and you can fundamentally improve the lives of hundreds of people uh, not just the employees so fantastic in a way it was the least likely time I was going to leave Diageo ever but it's when I moved on because the opportunity came along to become the group HRD of O2 at Telefonica. And that was just a fantastic mix of real customer centricity and technology, you know, in, in, in that business at the time. It was reinventing yeah. itself. It had just become part of Telefonica, um, had a fantastic uh, three and a half years there, and then still within Telefonica moved across with Matthew, the CEO, to set up Telefonica Digital Global, which was a mix of all of their startup digital businesses. And it was everything from internet TV in Brazil to e-health in Germany and everything in between. Wow. So real pace, digital, um, a fantastic time to be in it. And also, you know, I know the guys at O2 very well. We do a lot of work with them and they're, they're just great fun, aren't they? Brilliant fun, brilliant fun. And it was a big change because it, you know, O2 was this fantastic business that, but, which was clearly defined yeah. and working in a number of countries. whereas Telefonica Digital was all about having to be very fluid and having to manage each of those business units and the people in them in really different ways and very much at an individual level rather than at a company level. So um, that was a fantastic experience. Um, took a year off to spend time with my family, recharge, uh, do some professional development. Uh, and my last role that I've just stepped down from is... Uh, where I've been for the last six years, which is as Group HR Director of Direct Line, which is just a fantastic business. Uh, there I've had responsibility for HR, internal and external comms, CSR, and public affairs for part of the time as well. Um, and it's been just brilliant to be able to work as a team to lead quite a fundamental transformation from a business that was a subsidiary of a bank that was yeah. spun out to be a standalone business that went into the FTSE 100 and had to grow and evolve. Um, but it was the chance that we were just really lucky to have the chance to be able to step back and redefine what we wanted the company to be because we knew we didn't want it to be what it had been in the past. Yeah. Um, 
what we wanted it to stand for and how we wanted to win in the market. And that's just been a, I mean, we're lucky the company's been very successful during that time, but it's just been a brilliant opportunity to try lots of new things, um, test and learn and watch the company grow and people flourish. So let's talk about some of these new things, because I know um, from having met you before that you've got some quite progressive views around HR, that you know that it needs to change and that you've led some changes in HR. So before we get into looking at uh, the impact of the crisis, can you just share some of the things that perhaps you're most proud of where you've taken HR forward? Yeah, sure. I think I think there's probably two things that I think are really important in I can't think of an HR function anywhere where they wouldn't be important and relevant at the moment and the second one of those will, will play into what I think I'm most proud of of direct line and that um, the list of things the team achieved at direct line that I'm proud of is really long so it's hard to pick something <laughs> but it does I think before that though um, I think the first thing is that business change is happening at a faster pace and an ever faster pace um, and often now, it's more often genuine transformational change rather than being called transformation, but really being incremental change. Um, I think that creates a huge opportunity for HR to add a lot of value, um, well beyond its traditional remit. Um, but historically, as a function, I think HR, we have instincts that are about being cautious and about working with a 5-9 model, you know, where things have to be 99.999% perfect. Yeah. Um, and, and this was one of my learnings at Telefonica Digital, where they used to talk about 5-9 versus beta, and, and it forced us to really rethink things. Um, so we tend to work, you know, we, we tend to like to launch things that are 99.999% perfect. Um, and sometimes that's got to be the case you know if there's a legal implication a regulatory implication that's still true i'm not saying it's always wrong but when you're trying to support the business and the business is trying to change fast um then being able to work in a more iterative way a more beta way get something that's 80 20 and get it out fast into the business and then ask the business for feedback so that yeah. you can keep iterating and improving it as you go along means that you're much more likely to add value and much less likely to add frustration to the broader business. I think that's absolutely right. You know, that kind of agile product design methodology. And I think you want, if you've worked in a digital business, you get it because that's how they work with products. Yeah. And applying that, those same concepts, you know, we hear about minimum viable product. And, um, but I think, it, you know, we can, get, we can get a bit confused by all the jargon around it. And I think actually you've described it really well, is that it isn't about being perfect. Get it out there, get it working, get some feedback. If it hasn't worked, change it, but keep pace with the business rather than disappearing into our offices and kind of trying to plan it until it's absolutely perfect, by which time the business has got bored or fed up waiting. I, I think that's right. And, and the thing that really changed my thinking around that, because I was really precious around wanting things to be polished and shiny, was... Um, and it was at Telefonica Digital where somebody said, yeah, what are the companies you admire? And whenever people write a list of companies they admire, Apple is always there. Yeah. And they said, Apple has never launched a 5.9 product. Apple has never launched a product that within a week, they haven't had to put a software update out to fix the Absolutely. glitches. And yet it's one of the most admired companies because it's able to transform where it wherever it decides to compete because it's able to work quickly 
and, and yeah. that really changed my thinking around yeah. this not being good or bad. It's actually great if you can, as long as you can adapt and adjust, it's great to go fast with something that's good enough. And, and I think also with Apple, you look at what they do is that they only really have one or two, maximum three products on the development slate at any one time. And they get the resources of the entire company focused on that. Whereas I think sometimes in HR, we'll have so many initiatives and so many priorities and so many action plans that we spread ourselves way too thinly and we just can't move at pace across all of those fronts. Spot on, yeah. So I think that that's that's definitely a big opportunity for HR. And you know, if ever there's recent experience of having to work on the hoof really quickly, the last three or four months is is great experience. So the question is, how as HR do we keep working like that when we're not in crisis, so that we can add real value? I think that's an opportunity. You talked also about um, HR being renowned, perhaps for being cautious, and I and I take your point about you know, progress rather than perfection and so on. But is there something that you've done as well in your career in HR where you were really quite brave and you weren't sure whether it was going to work and you just kind of went for it? Yeah, great segue. Because uh, I think the second the second thing for me, and this is where I think we have got, you know, an example I'm really proud of, particularly because if you'd asked me at the start of this three years what it was going to end up looking like, it, it ended up looking nothing like what we thought it would. And that's what was great about it. I think the second thing is that there's a really big change in boards and leadership teams in how much they worry and care about things like culture, inclusion and diversity, well-being, employee engagement. Um, and I think that's always been important for a few companies and has been really fundamental to their DNA. But, and they've taken it seriously. But I think there's a lot of companies where historically there was the approach was do what we need to do almost at a token level to keep us out of trouble in those areas. I think that's really yeah. changing because ESG is changing attitudes on that. Uh, the, the, the media impact of reputational issues is making people worry about that. Shareholders are actively in, interested in in those areas now and there's the regulatory government scrutiny and also customers are starting to ask questions about yeah. those things as well so i think that means that there's a real opportunity for hr with the most senior lead boards and leadership teams um, to not just have a seat at the table but to add real tangible value and be perceived to add tangible value in those areas but that means we need to move from being facilitators to being much braver and genuinely challenging the business around what's possible and, and, and starting things where you don't have the answers. So the example I would use is that, you know, and I touched on it a little bit earlier on, was at DLG we wanted to, we wanted to transition from being everything you would expect a subsidiary of a bank culturally to be, especially because it was just after the financial crash when, you know, reputations were not at their highest. Um, <laughs> to being much more of a standalone, dynamic, customer-centric company that really importantly could attract people who would normally not entertain coming into financial services. And that was quite a big shift that needed to happen, and we knew it was going to take a few years for that to happen. And the, and the biggest sort of banner was we need to fundamentally change the culture. So mm -hmm. Actually, the first thing we did was we banned the word culture at Exco meetings. 
<laughs> because it was one of those nothing conversations that got you nowhere to have a conversation yeah. about whether you've got a good or a bad culture. So whenever we got into that, whether it was a praising or criticizing conversation, we banned the word culture as it talk about exactly what you're talking about. Because a conversation about whether we have diversity or whether we're slow at decision-making are completely different, but they both kind of fit under this nothing banner of culture. Um, the minute you make it a specific conversation, you can do something with it and you can decide what you want to change. So that was the... I think that's fascinating. So you're actually kind of really focusing on the behavioural tweaks you need to and keeping it small and keeping it focused and I agree I think so often we have these big change programs or culture change programs or and actually it's too nebulous it's too intangible and ultimately if, if I'm a leader I understand that if I'm you know in the conversation that I need to do that differently that bit use different words or sit differently or hold it in a different place or you know, I, there's specifics I can get my head around I can do that yeah be more inclusive or be you know change the cultures just too unwieldy and it's easy for me to abdicate isn't it it's easy for me to opt it's, out. It's, it's too it's too nebulous it's too easy to opt out your spot and, and also it's too easy to have multiple conversations at the same time so the trigger for banning the word was we we had this moment where two two senior leaders were disagreeing with each other because one thought we had a great culture and one thought we had a terrible culture and actually one was talking about the the um the progress we were making on gender and one was talking about the fact that we're too bureaucratic and slow in making decisions <laughs> and until you break it down to the next level you can't actually yeah. all have one conversation and do something with it so yeah we wanted, once, once we broke it down, we wanted to create a much more energized and open culture. And the key to that was everyone being able to be themselves because most other things would flow yeah. from that. Um, and, and that, hence one of the reasons why we dialed up all the work around one of our values, which was called bring all of yourself to work. At the time when we wrote it, it was certainly aspirational yeah. as a value rather than a reflection of where we were. It led all sorts of pieces of work it led yes it led the obvious ones which were around things like you know we focused on diversity uh, we we focused on really moving the needle on our gender balance we signed up for women in finance we doubled the number of senior female leaders all those sort of things but quickly it actually moved from those sort of agendas to actually what will it take for this culture to be really inclusive where everyone can be themselves rather than we make a progress, we make progress against a particular box. And about three years ago, we were, we were probably a couple of years on that journey. And where that really got us to was a conversation that said, okay, what would the test be that mm. would prove that everyone can be themselves and can talk about whatever they need to talk about? And the, the test we set ourselves was when we honestly believe that anyone can talk about their mental health then actually having a conversation about childcare should be pretty straightforward yeah or or whatever your conversation is because that yeah. that was i think it still is but that was certainly deemed the most tricky conversation for someone to have with their manager or with their colleagues at work and you can measure that can't you you can measure that yeah. you can ask your people do you feel comfortable having yeah. a conversation about and, and if you if the answer's no they don't then you haven't made it and if they do then you've made progress and I think that kind of real tangible behavioral impact that you can quickly measure I think is really important. 
I think that's right. And and so we did include some of the questions in our regular pulse surveys were, can I bring all of myself to work? Can I have an open and honest conversation about anything that is important to me? But it, it led us down a journey where we kind of, it, it, rather than learning to swim down a lane in the swimming pool, we had to jump off a diving board with mental health because we really <laughs> didn't know how it was going to go. And um, we we kicked off a whole series of initiatives that started with our senior leaders and our leadership conference and really having a serious conversation around mental health there and it's probably the best example of most of the best and brilliant things we've done on that agenda over the last three years were not envisaged when we started. Oh, I think that's really interesting because quite often we're asked in HR and in other functions too to map out what it will look like you know and and we envisage you know on this Gantt chart behavioral change in March 2021 and and actually you know being being brave enough to say look this is messy this is unclear because that's the world we live in and so whilst I'm not going to put the business in any great risk but we are going to take some steps where we don't know if it's going to work and that's okay. Yeah. So, so for example, we had no plans to have mental health first aiders when we started. That came came bottom up as a as a as an idea. We then put a mental health. We you know we we, we asked for volunteers. We identified them. We trained them. We had a mental health first aider on every floor. I had no idea though that they would become such powerful spokespersons for how people are feeling generally. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, they're it's on their radar, it's on their they're kind of observing, and how interesting, fascinating stuff. Oh, a, it's on their radar and they're observing, but also they became a safe place for people to talk. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so whether it was mental health or whether it was other agendas, you know, we had an employee representative body that's fantastic, but we now had a second voice that could say on a very specific level, you know, on the third floor of our Ipswich office, this is something that's coming out that people are feeling because they they were the representative of that floor's feelings. So it drove up our, our leadership EQ dramatically because we were getting that input. Brilliant. Uh, and, and that's just one example. I wouldn't have expected that our external employee support provider that we'd need to change them because they they ran it from a call centre and we needed to change them to a provider who had trained counsellors because people were ringing them about mental health issues. Yeah. So there were a whole range of things. So leadership behaviours were really important. Management training was really important. But some of the most powerful thing came one year in and became things we did on the second year that we'd never been able to imagine. So yeah. if you ask me what I'm proudest of, is the changing of our culture, but but the way it was done by using mental health as a positive catalyst yeah. for improving everybody's lives at DLG. Thanks, Simon. We could talk about your your kind of history and your and things you've done in your professional life for a long time, but I want to look at moving the conversation on a bit because obviously right now we're in lockdown, we're talking via Zoom, and we've been in lockdown for a couple of months now, and everybody's talking about when we return to normal, when we get back to normal. And at Disruptive HR, we're, we're trying to kind of run a, a broader campaign around creating something better, better normal. And, and I just really wanted to get your take on when things go back or go forward into um, whatever this new normal is, what are the, you know, one or two things that you think could change dramatically for HR? Because as you know, you know, we have an opportunity here. We're 
you know, hopefully never going to be given an opportunity of this magnitude ever again because it's scary and big and it's awful for, for many people. But for all the sadness of this crisis, it does give us an opportunity, but probably quite a short, small window of opportunity for HR to articulate what this looks like. Um, I know that you've you know, moved on from kind of corporate roles and you're, you're doing more non-exec roles now, but, but you know, what would be the things if you're sitting around a board table, either as a non-exec or as a, an exec, that you'd be looking at and saying, this needs to be better, this needs to be different? What would be the, the things you would call out? Yeah, and, and I, think, I think your question has the key to it, which is whether you go back or you go forward. In, in the way you ask the question, I think it it probably does a better job of the answer I'm about to give you. I mean, <laughs> the, the, look, the COVID pandemic has been a huge human crisis. Uh, and I think it's, it's easy to sort of get into the HR piece and forget that for a lot of people, many people have been directly impacted and have lost loved ones. Uh, everyone has been indirectly impacted. And it's not often that in, you know, in a modern first world society, you have everybody impacted. You know, our wars tend to be things we watch on television nowadays. You know, they happen over there and drones yeah. drop bombs somewhere and it's all very distant and far away. Uh, this, this is the, the first time you know, as a society and therefore as a, as a company, all your people have been really directly and quite profoundly impacted, some for the better, nearly everybody for the worse in some kind of way. But I do think there's a real opportunity, and I think you're right, the window for that opportunity is quite short. I think it's the next three to six months, call it till the end of the year at the very most. And I think the opportunity is to decide what we want the new normal to look like. I think you can make that really, really complicated and if you do, every, everything I just said about too slow, too difficult, too inflexible you know, applies to this as well. So I think it's about keeping it really, really simple. But the opportunity, I think, is for HR to lead a structured conversation with leadership teams um, to stop and really reflect on what you had before. Actually, within what you had before, what was great that you definitely want to go back to, um, that you've still got or you're missing at the moment, but was great. Actually, what wasn't great, and with hindsight, you'd you know you wish we hadn't been like that, and you want to consciously make sure you don't go back to it, and then have the same conversation about the last three or four months. What has been really different during the last three or four months, and within that, there may be some things that you don't want to keep. Uh, so, for example, you may have had to you may have had to live with some risk appetites in your business uh, yeah. around how you work that you don't want to keep in the future. But there will also be a lot of things that you want to make sure you keep, you protect, and you actively encourage. So being able to identify that, that's two lists, right? That's two lists. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It should fit on a very small piece of paper, and it, and it should be no more than about half a dozen to a dozen things on each side. If it's, if it's more than that, you're not going to do anything with it anyway. Yeah. So if you end up with a bigger list, then ask people to prioritize it, would be my advice. Yeah. Um, once you've got those things, I think the next conversation, which is probably the most important one for me, is about why, why were we able to work in such a different way? And, that, and the answer isn't because we were in a crisis. So if you say, okay, we were in the crisis, but what were we able to do differently, faster, more decisively, more flexibly that we weren't able to do before? And then most importantly, who stepped up and made that possible? 
and and uh, we had a concept for a little while, which I think is really important. We we tend to when we when we think of people, we tend to think of shiny leaders. Yeah. And I think the really important thing is who are the silent stars? Who are the people who were able to quietly cope and adjust to the change quickly, were able to keep accountability, were able to collaborate and cause alignment? And often those people are not the people who did the presentations on the Zoom meetings. You have to go (laughs) one or two levels down to identify those people. So if it's people at a senior level, go into that team and say, who did it within that team? And who demonstrated the behaviours that made made us possible to be agile without having to put an agile completely change our structure or without having to put fancy names around our teams and all of that gizmo? They were agile in the way they worked. I think that's one of the most exciting things for me that's come out of this. I and mean, we've been banging on about adult to adult trusting relationships for a long time, but but you know through this crisis, it's been blown out of the water that that your grade determines whether you can be trusted or whether you're going to behave well or whether you can use your own judgment. You know, we have seen heroic, amazing, incredible behaviors right across the board, haven't we? From, you know, people that we would see as frontline, blue collar, whatever you want to call it. And equally, we've seen some bloody horrendous behaviors from some leaders. And, you know, I think, and vice versa, of course, but but I think it's exactly that. It, it's uh, it's not that we can say, oh, well, you know, we can trust our leaders, but we can't trust frontline workers. So therefore, they've got to be more governed, more um, subject to rules, etc. Actually, it comes down to human beings and leaders knowing those human beings and making a judgment about those human beings. I think that's that's absolutely right. And, and I think the, so success, I think, by the end of the year, I think is if you if you went through that process and really looked a couple of levels down, and if you identified those people, and you gave them broader remits, more responsibility, promotion in some cases, whatever that looks yeah. like, I think there's two things that will happen. One is you're much more likely to keep the change you want to keep. I think the other thing that's likely to happen is in most organisations, if you go a couple of levels down the gender and ethnicity balances will be better than they are at your senior team. Yeah. And therefore you'll make progress on that agenda in a completely level playing field way. I think that's a fantastic point to finish on actually, is that, you know, this is, uh, this has got so many other spin-offs if we handle this, this period, right, this period of forced reflection. And, and I think again, HR as the facilitator of that is, is going to really determine the future of HR in your organization for the next five years, I think. Yeah. yeah, we've got to be honest about that. So I just want to finish off. You mentioned that you do work with a charity. Do you just want to give a bit of a plug to that? And then uh, I'll let you go. Yeah, no, so, sure. So I've got uh, two things that I'm, I'm a non-exec at the Nottingham Building Society, which is a wonderful um, building society over 150 years old and member owned. So if you're looking for somewhere that isn't shareholder driven to invest your money, that's a good place to look. Um, (laughs) But my real passion over the last six or seven years has been um, as a trustee of a charity called Kids Out. And uh, it's a fabulous charity. We work with every refuge home in the UK. It's the fun and happiness charity. And our, our main objective is to make sure that Children and families who are you know, right at rock bottom when they end up in a refuge home, often having had to flee uh, you know, in an unplanned way from domestic violence or whatever it is, they've had to leave everything behind. We, we want to make sure kids get toys 
and clothes, and they get positive days out. So we, you know, we take about thirty to forty thousand days out a year for children, and we deliver. Uh, we've just delivered toy boxes to every child in every refuge home in the UK at a time of lockdown because they're really stuck. They're not even going to school. And we have a thing called the Kids Out 8,000 Challenge on at the moment, if you'd like to have a look at that, because we've had to cancel all of our fundraising events because they're all events that involve bringing lots of people together just at a time when our demand from refuge homes is at its highest. So if anybody's looking for a good cause to support, um, please Google Kids Out Charity and uh, give generously. Simon, thank you so much for your time and for your insights, both in, into your career and key learnings there, but also about the crisis. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Take care. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.